Good evening. Our scripture reading today is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. Reading from verse 1. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they salvaged the Amorites, Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house when he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the women. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she, wore, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Mabel, for reading for us this evening. Can I invite you to now bow our heads as we turn to the Lord in prayer? So gracious and heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your word that is so freely available for us. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to gather here in your house to listen to your word. And Lord, even as your word is being preached this evening, we ask for us to be attentive, to listen to what you have to speak, to be obedient to what you have to tell us. So as we commit this day to you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look now into these next two chapters today, we find that 2 Samuel 11 and 12 relates to us this narrative of how King David acquired his eighth wife, Bathsheba, and how by her, his successor to the throne in Solomon. And just to recap for us the list of names, if you recall, David's first wife was Michal, the daughter of King Saul, and she was taken to be his bride as a reward for slaying the Philistine giant Goliath. Now, biblical account has very little to say about her except for three brief incidents. The first was when she was part of her husband's escape from the clutches of her father. Knowing that Saul was envious and jealous over David's success and wanted to exterminate him, he sent messengers to David's house to kill him. But it was his wife, Michal, who assisted David down a window and then placed in his bed a dummy to deceive the men. So this was the first incident. The second occasion we hear of this woman was when it was recorded that Saul gave her away to a man named Palti, the son of Laish, when David was wandering around during his wilderness days. And finally, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, where Michal despised David for dancing before the Lord because he wore only a linen ephod when the ark of the Lord was brought back to Jerusalem. As for David's second wife, 
We are told that she was the beautiful Abigail of Camel, who happened to also be the spouse of Nabal, a rich fool. And if you recall, soon after his death from a heart attack, David took her as his own. And interestingly enough, since then, neither she nor her children were mentioned any further. And as to the next five of David's wife, all we know were only their names. And you can see them as they've been flashed up on the screen. But in addition to his wife, we are also told in 1 Chronicles 3.9 that David also had many concubines. But what about Bathsheba? What information do we have of this woman? Well, if you refer with me back to the text that was read by Pastor Mabel in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you find that verses 2 and 3 indicate to us that Bathsheba was a, a, a very beautiful woman. And we are told also that she was married to a Hittite by the name of Uriah. It appears uh, that this man David had the neck uh, of beautiful women. But we also discovered that she also happens to be the daughter of Eliam. Now, it's important for us. Why the Bible mentions all this is because there is a reason behind this. It's important for us to understand that this man, Eliam, was mentioned. Why? Because he was the son of Ahitophel. And who was Ahitophel? Ahitophel was David's trusted counsellor. And as David's counsellor, Ahitophel was instrumental in advising the king in many important decisions. So he was seen as a valuable asset in David's team. But yet, we find that despite realizing of this connecting relationship that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahitophel, after inquiring about her as mentioned in verse 3, David still coveted after her. David still got her pregnant, committed murder by killing her husband, and then proceeded to take her as his eighth bride. It is sobering to know that even the best of men and women in biblical times had their faults and their failures. And here we have David, Israel's greatest king, the man after God's heart, committing the sins of adultery and murder. But be warned, therefore, not to say that, you know, this will never happen to any of us. It will never happen to me. This is a common phrase that we often hear ourselves say this. But if you recall in the Gospel of Matthew 26, verses 30 and 35, we read of this narrative where Jesus foretold his disciples of their impending betrayal. Before he was going to be betrayed, before he was going to the cross to die, he told the disciples that all of you were going to betray me. But upon hearing this, we are told that in the Gospel passage in Matthew 26, Peter insisted, he says this, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then he goes on to affirm that even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. It will never happen to me. This was what Peter was saying. But as we know, eventually, Peter and his fellow disciples, they did deny the Lord Jesus. So we can boldly declare, like Peter and David, that it will never happen to me. But here is where we do well 
to heed the Apostle Paul's <coughs> admonishment to his readers in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where he wants, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed that he falls. You see, friends, the point here that I want to point out to us is simply this. We must always be alert. We cannot say that it will never happen to me. We must always be alert. Why? Because sin is always lurking somewhere, always ready to strike at you and I. And so how did this whole fiasco start? Well, in these two chapters that we're going to walk through today, we'll see the stages of David's experiences. In fact, you'll find that beginning with stage one, where he con- how he conceived the sin, he then moved on to committing the sin, leading him to covering up of the sin, following by a confrontation and confessing, and finally facing the consequence of the sin. And so we start with stage one. How did this sin conceive in the life of David? As Pastor Mabel has read in the opening, verse, uh, opening first five verses, we, we are told that against this backdrop, where Joab and the Israelite army, they were laying a siege against the Amorites at Rabbah, and where we are told that it was the time where kings go out for battle, but yet we are told that David as king remained behind at Jerusalem. How was this so? Well, scholars believe that David remained behind simply because why? Maybe he was close to 50 years old. That's how scholars kind of uh, estimated. That by the time when 2 Samuel was being written, David was now close to 50 years old. He was a bit old. He was a bit, you know, slowed down a little bit, you know. And so this may be true. And what may also be true, that due to his age and his position, it was advised by his leaders against risking his life. And thus, he's to refrain from engaging in any warfare. But saying thus, David should nevertheless at least be with his troops. David should nevertheless, you know, be there with his men, deploying strategy or maybe providing moral support instead of idling back home. And whatever the reason, good or bad, that kept David back in Jerusalem, this much is true. Idle time is the devil's play. And as quoted by the hymn writer Isaac Watts, he says this, For Satan always finds some mischief still for idle hands and minds to do. What he's saying simply is this, that the moment we are idle, the moment we are not doing anything, that's the moment the devil will strike at us. And so it was recorded in verse 2 that David one day, as he was walking idly on the roof of his palace, when his wandering eyes caught sight of this beautiful Bathsheba taking a bath. And I don't know about you. There's something interesting connecting here. I find it very interesting that this woman's name was Bathsheba, and it so happened that David saw her, and she was taking a bath. Whether there's a connection or not, I don't know. 
And while she was building up on the roof, or why her house for the matter was so near the palace, well, it's not our concern. The point here is that David should have set his mind on things above and not on things that are on earth. And as a result of this, because he didn't keep his mind pure, because he kept his mind in a wandering state, his imagination wild, his imagination went wild. And so we can conclude that it was David's idleness that caused him to conceive the sin. Now, the truth of the matter is this. Huh? We can't blame any man okay, if a beautiful woman comes by into his line of vision. But here's the thing. If that man deliberately chooses to linger on and to feed on that lust, then I'm afraid he's asking for trouble. Because we hear Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 5, isn't it? In verse 27 and verse 28, Jesus says these words, that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when David paused for a second look, his mind immediately went into overdrive and sin conceived in his heart. But this was the moment that David should have followed the example of Joseph to flee from the sin. And if you recall the incident back in Genesis, yeah, <clears throat> where Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, Joseph gave us the good example of fleeing from the temptation. But not so for David. You see, by lingering on in this thought, David allowed Satan to tempt him leading ultimately to a series of unholy actions. You see, when God forbids something and calls it sin, we shouldn't try to get around it. Nor should we insist that it is not sin and we should pursue it. Because bear in mind, you find that David has already committed the sin of adultery seven times. And yet we are told that he had this audacity you know, the moment he set eyes on Bathsheba, knowing that she was related to his counsellor, yet he had this audacity to inquire about Bathsheba. And furthermore, we know that David was a man who, you know, he knew God's law very well. He knew that adultery was a sin. He should have immediately stopped his wicked intention. And the lesson, therefore, for us that we can take regarding David's example is this. You see, that the moment we lay aside our spiritual armour, the moment we go into the idle state, sin will strike at us. And this is why it's so crucial, not only for us to know God's Word, but we need to apply them daily into our lives. I'm sure David knew the law in Exodus 20, verse 30 and 14, where it tells him that you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. But yet, he violated them. He violated them simply because he failed to apply the word of God to his heart. And the key word here, friends, is application. You may know the word of God, but if you don't apply them into your heart, you will end up very much the same like David. 
we will end up very much like what James says. We are only hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. So this was how sin was conceived in David's heart. But from conceiving the sin, we find that now David proceeded to commit the sin. What did he do? We are told that in verse 3, so David sent messengers. Verse 4, rather. So David sent message. Uh, so David sent message. Sorry, verse 3. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliab, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And the other interesting thing for us to note here is this that the moment David sent messenger, verse 4 tells us that he took her and she came to him and he laid with her. For me, this is a very puzzling thought because you find that in this whole event, we find here the willingness of Bathsheba to go along with David's desires. You see, although the Hebrew word here translated took can mean to acquire, to lay hold, to seize, but there is no evidence of force on David's part. Because we are told that Bathsheba himself, herself, came to him. Bathsheba himself laid with him. And so we can assume that she cooperated together willingly with David. But if this is true, what could then be the motivation on Bathsheba's part? Well, Bible teacher Warren Wiseby offers a couple of possible answers. And the simplest answer would be because if she refused the request of the king, well, maybe she'll be punished. So she dare not refuse, so she went along with it. Or maybe it was her ambition to have a royal baby. After all, who wouldn't want to live in royalty? You know, especially knowing that you know, this would help her future greatly, not knowing the fate of her husband, because her husband, Uriah, was a soldier, and you know, as a soldier, you might be killed any time in a battle. But the truth of the matter is we can speculate all these answers and more. But educated guesses are not helpful, as the Bible does not reveal for us the correct reason. But one thing is sure. Just as it takes two hands to clap, it takes two hands, it takes two persons to commit the sin. And so we find that for a few minutes of forbidden pleasure, what ends up was great sorrow and death that follows. And the unfortunate thing today is that many famous people, though they may admit to being unfaithful to their spouses, and not only it glamorized by the tabloids, it doesn't seem to hurt their popularity. They may get away with it, but let's be warned. The Bible warns us that judgment will come. Because so serious is this sin of adultery that God's law states that both the guilty party be stoned to death. So what did David do now to rectify the situation? Let's continue reading this passage as we look now to verse 5. We're going to read a few passages as we read from verse 5 to verse 27. 
And the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to the, my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Verse 13, And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote the letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Let Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. When David heard these words from Bathsheba, I am pregnant. And if you didn't realize by now, these are the only three words that was recorded by Bathsheba in this whole entire scene. And in fact, when David heard these words, I'm impregnant, it was the three words that David never wanted to hear. It must come as a shock to him. Because when Bathsheba told David, I'm impregnant, we can paraphrase it to mean simply this. David, the next step is yours. What are you going to do? And we find that David being the military tactician that he was, what did he do? He devised a plan. He devised a plan to cover up his sin. And so what he did? He recalled Uriah back from the battlefront and asked him to be home with his wife. This would exonerate him of his sin. But as we are told, instead of going as planned, Uriah refused the king's suggestion and so David had to come up with yet another scheme. So plan B, he got the man drunk. But a drunk Uriah proved to be a greater man than a sober David. For he once again refused to lie with his wife while his men were out in the battlefield. And if Uriah wouldn't go home, what's left but plan C? Get rid of him in the battle so that the path is now clear for David to marry Bathsheba. Now, I don't know about you. When you hear of all that David had done, do you realize how many of the Ten Commandments David had broken? Anyone want to hazard a guess? One? Two? Charles said six. Any other guess? Three, 
four? Well, here's the list. Firstly, we are told that he coveted his neighbor's wife. He broke commandment number 10. He committed adultery. He broke commandment, commandment number 7. He resorted to lying. Commandment number 9. He murdered Uriah. Commandment number 6. And to top it up, he married Bathsheba. And by doing so, he was actually stealing another man's wife. You see, David thought that he could escape from his sin. But all the while, he was merely adding more sin. And the manner in which David took Bathsheba, we are told in verse 27 that it was not only despicable, but verse 7 clearly, 27 clearly tells us that this displeased the Lord. And so as we move on now to chapter 12, we find that God had to send the prophet Nathan to confront and rebuke the king for his failures. And so as Nathan came, Nathan proceeded to tell David a parable about a rich man who took his poor neighbor's only lamb as a meal for his guests. And then, as a finale, Nathan ends with these words directed to David. He said to David, you are that man. And if Bathsheba's word, I'm in pregnant, was bad, we find that the prophet's announcement was worse. Again, church, it's important for us to be mindful of this. You see, if David was not confronted with this, would David have confessed of his sin? If, Nathan, if God did not send Nathan to confront David of his wrongdoings, would David have confessed that, yes, he has done wrong in the sight of God? I think the answer would be no. And so we find the importance here that without confrontation, there can be no confession. And we find that in his confrontation now with the king, Nathan first pointed out to David that, hey, what you are doing is not right because you are devaluing the goodness of God. If you look with me to verse chapter 12 of verse 7 to 8, Nathan told David this. He says, I anoint you king over Israel and I deliver you out of the hand of Saul and I give you your master's house and your master's wife into your arms. And if this was too little, I would add to you much more. God was being good to David. God was saying that if you needed more, I would provide for you more. You need not do all these things. But by doing what he did, he was devaluating the goodness of God. But Nathan also pointed out in verse 9, that in his failure to obey the five commandments, in breaking the five commandments, David was in fact despising God's law. So sometimes it's important that we need to be confronted when we are wrong. We now move on to stage five. And we find that in committing the sin of his lust and deceit, David had to face the consequence. Why? Because no sin can go unpunished. You can never hide your sins from God. We will all have to be answerable to what we have done. And for David, the consequence was catastrophic. We read, again, if you look with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, we read the moment he was confronted, 
the first consequence he faced was that the baby that Bathsheba was carrying died. And then later on, <coughs> in chapter 13, we find that David's other sons, Amnon, Absalom, Adinojah, they were all slain. Then we are even told that David's daughter was raped. And raped by who? By her half-brother. And even his concubines were later humiliated publicly by Absalom, his third son, when his son revolted against his father in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 22. What a price to pay for a moment of folly. What a price to pay when we continue to live in sin. And as I like what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon wants us, that when we sin, listen to what he says, God does not allow His children to sin successfully. So you can never get away with sinning. But at the end, <coughs> there's always the good news, isn't it? Because the turning point of 2 Samuel chapter 12 is in verse 13. That the moment David was confronted with his sin, the moment he realized that he has done wrong, what was David's response? We are told in verse 13, he confessed. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And notice here, immediately, when Nathan confronted him, immediately he admitted his sin. There was no justification on David's part. There was no action. There was no argument. There was no saying, that, uh, uh, but, 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 but. He just admitted that he was wrong. He humbly admitted to his fault. And it is due to his sincere repentance that we are told immediately in verse 13 that Nathan assured the king of the Lord's pardon. And the same can also be said of us, isn't it? Because the word in 1 John, the Bible in 1 John 1, 9 tells us, and this is what we will normally recite when we have Holy Communion. <laughs> that if we confess of our sins, we are mindful that God is faithful, that God is just, that God will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. But God can only do this if we, are, if we first and foremost are confronted with our sin and repent and confess them. And here's also a last interesting point for us before we close. Because when you look in verse 16 of one, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, we are told that David continued on to fast and pray, even though Nathan told him that his unborn child would not come out alive. Why would David continue, insist on fasting and praying, knowing of the outcome of his unborn child? <laughs> he could have simply just said, okay, yes, I hear you, God. I will continue. But why did he continue on fasting and praying? Well, <clears throat> I believe this merely showed of David's true remorse and his true repentance. And very often, when we tell God, Lord, I'm sorry, you know, we tend to take things very, you know, very lightheartedly. We pray, Lord, forgive me all my sins, you know. But are we truly repentant? Are we truly seeking God for forgiveness? And we learn from David here that the fact that he insists on praying and fasting, knowing that his unborn child was still there, shows his sincerity, shows that he is truly remorse and he seeks repentance. And this is something that we need to learn 
from David. So as we close, <coughs> let's be mindful to be constantly alert. Why? Because sin is always looking around. And as I end, I just want to leave you with this three simple questions to summarize today's message. What is sin? Sin is simply when we break any of God's commandments. It doesn't matter whether the commandment is great or small. The moment we break any of His commandments, it is a sin. What do we do when we sin? As we have learned from David, the answer is not to cover up our sins because the moment we cover up our sin, it will lead to more sin. What should we do when we sin? And as we learn in this passage, we have to turn to the Lord, we have to confess. Why? Because we have a God who is gracious to forgive us when we come to repentance. So Father, indeed, let this be our heart's desire, that Lord, our hearts will be pure before you, to do your will. Help us not to be complacent like David did in having an idle mind where the, we give the opportunity, the devil, the opportunity to lure us into sin. So Father, we pray, Lord, as you're reminded from your word this evening, that sin is always looking around and the devil is always looking to cause mischief into our lives. But help us to stand firm, to always put on the armor of the Lord, to learn to apply what we have learned in, our, in, in your word, so that we can be strong and not fall into sin. And Father, even when we do fall to sin, thank you for your word in reminding us that you are God who is faithful, you are God who is forgiving, your God who is always ready to cleanse and to forgive us, but only when we first are willing to confess. And so, Father, also we pray, Lord, that as your word reminds us, help us to be humble, that when we do wrong, that when we have friends around us who confront us and to correct us when we are wrong, Father, help us to be humble, to accept to be like David, to say, yes, I have failed. And so, Lord, as we close this time, we continue to thank you. And as we depart from this place, let's receive <clears throat> the blessing of God, that may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and the love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you now and always.